0: Welcome to I'm Josh Smith and I'm Mike Graham. Mike, we got a lot to get into as we sit a mere six days away from the opening of training camp. But we have to start with what we said we were going to start with last week. That is one of us proclaiming superiority over the other. Last week, we drafted a secondary. We each drafted a secondary consisting of CFL players. We then put a poll up on our Twitter page and the results are in. And Mike, congratulations. You won with 57% of the vote. While I could sit here... File a formal protest. You did pick two players who aren't in the league anymore. I'm not going to be a sore loser. I'm going to give you your flowers. I could have objected a week ago. I didn't. And the referees, the polls decision is final. So you won fair and square. So, Mike, congratulations. Take your victory lap because according to our listeners, you drafted the better secondary than I did. Congratulations, sir.
1: Well, the people have spoken, Josh, and it's – uh pretty proud day for me it it really is and yes yes i might have drafted two guys that are in the xfl right now i believe but as we all know as canadians you're not at the top of your profession unless you're in the states so there we go
0: (laughs) very good very good all right we're gonna do one more thing here before we move on mike we're gonna dust off an old gem we're gonna we going to discuss a bozo. You got you got a bone to pick with someone this week, so why don't you take it away and tell everyone who you're, your first – I mean, I don't think we've done the bozo segment in a couple of seasons now, but you got someone mm-hmm. you want to call out here, so the floor is yours, buddy.
1: And a far ber- for me to call someone out for negativity. You know, I'm not exactly Mr. Positivity, but I enjoy – I still enjoy watching the CFL. I still enjoy watching the Thai Cats. I enjoy coming on the show with you each week talking about those subjects. Someone who doesn't enjoy this, who covers the league, is Herb Sturkowski of the Montreal Gazette. Now, he's had the long rep, has had a reputation for a long time of being a bit of a curmudgeon, a bit of a grump. But I think it's it's reached all-time new levels recently. He just doesn't seem to have any joy covering the CFL, covering the Montreal Alouettes. He makes fun of the draft on Twitter, which I get. Listen, I don't. I'm not a big draft guy. I'm not a huge CFL draft guy, but I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to proclaim that it doesn't matter outright. I I don't think it matters as much as some people think it does, but I think it has its purpose. And it's not just that he, he just, he bangs on the league constantly, not because of, um, you know, the way it's run, but he does that as well, but just because he doesn't enjoy watching it. And I don't understand why he continues to to cover the league if if he hates it so much? Like this isn't good for for himself. It makes him miserable. Um, you know, doing his job it, it doesn't help the fans. And I know that reporters aren't cheerleaders for the league, but when it comes down to you know you, your own mental health, it seems, or your own happiness, why continue to do something that you hate so much? It just doesn't make sense to me. I think it's time for Herb Sikowski to hang up the cleats it's time to retire put down the pen it's over man you know it's just causing you nothing but misery so just end it
0: i gotta agree with you pal like far be it for me to tell someone else what to do with their life but have you ever seen him say anything positive like it's always he's always got to find the negative slant and again like you said you're not mr positivity i've you can look back in the archives of the show or anything I've written over the past 12, 13 years of, of covering the league. I've taken my shot at the league, but like you, it's still something that I'm, that I'm, I love. It's still something that I want to see be successful. And the team we cheer for the league that we love, they screw up from time to oh, time. Right? There's, there's no denying that. But at the same time, it's like, you can balance the negative and the positive, right? Like you don't just, you don't always have to be like, I think if you're always just super positive and they could do no wrong, I don't like that either. But I, no. I, I prefer that to, to being constantly negative all the time. Like it just, I just don't, like you said, I don't understand. He doesn't seem to get any joy out of covering the league. And I guess his employers make him do it, but like, why? Like if if I didn't like doing something, I I just wouldn't do it you know what i mean like, i just and you think
1: he'd have that poll after all those years to be like okay yeah. I, I don't want to cover the outlets i'll cover rocket or whatever other <clears throat> teams he covers because it's just like and he's watching you know he'll he'll tweet out that oh i'm watching the Browns instead of the cfl because the cfl is terrible like i can't watch not those exact words but you know the product on the field just isn't watchable anymore and like it's just like okay fine then 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 quit you know you know what i mean like and maybe and that's easy for me to say you know i don't know his financial situation and all that but for your own mental health just just call it a day man just call it it did you see the browns yeah he's a big browns fan
0: well that's why he's miserable
1: yeah, I could be a part of it. Could be a he's a
0: Cleveland Browns fan. That yeah. could make the most positive person in the world miserable. Talk like yeah. I can see why he's so negative. Everything in his life sucks. Like I, and, I don't mean that like yeah, personally, yeah. like his sports fandom, like, oh my god, being a Cleveland Browns fan? Jeez. I thought yeah. I had it bad being like a Knicks and a Cubs fan, but a Browns fan? Oh my lord.
1: Yeah. Ooh. We just un- we just discovered the roots. <clears throat> perhaps the root of the problem. He has to watch terrible uh, <laughs> Cleveland Browns football on top of the terrible CFL that he has to watch. So it just <laughs> like, it just compounds, right?
0: Oh my Lord. All right, let's move on though. Enough about, you know, I mean, he might said the draft doesn't matter, but we're going to talk about the draft because that was the big thing from last week. There was the, the CFL draft, the Canadian draft and the global draft. So we're going to get into the Canadian draft first. Ty Cat selected six players in last Tuesday's draft, starting with the University of Saskatchewan's Dayton Black in the first round, they then picked—he uh, was an offensive lineman, by the way—they then picked Wolford Laurier defensive back Patrick Burke Jr. with their first pick of the fourth round, Mount Allison defensive lineman Reese Martin with their second fourth-round pick, Western defensive back Robert Panabaker in the fifth round, Calgary defensive lineman Josh Heyer with their first pick in the eighth round, and they finished their draft off by taking receiver Caleb Morin with their second eighth round pick out of the University of Saskatchewan. Last week, Mike, you and I discussed where the team might make their picks, and we outlined offensive line and defensive backs as areas of need, while also touching on the defensive line and receiver as possible places they could make selection. Of the team's six picks, they took one O-lineman, two DBs, two D-lineman, and one receiver. I don't know about you, but I would say we nailed it. Maybe we kind of are draft experts after all, no? Yeah, we nailed
1: the position groups. Um, <laughs> we didn't have any info on uh, the on players. players? That no.
0: but yes, <laughs> have been throwing, um, throwing darts line, to the dartboard.
1: Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But yeah, offensive line DBs and, and defensive lines. Uh, you know, I don't know a lot about the individual players, but... I like the way that they went, uh, positionally wise.
0: So despite not knowing much about the players and I'm in the same boat as you, is there any one of these picks that in particular stood out to you? Well, the first pick,
1: excuse me, the first pick kind of stands out to me. Dane Black is an interesting story. I believe he was a quarterback, um, starting out in his, in his younger days of football in, uh, Manitoba and. And broke several records playing that position. Um, now he obviously transitioned to the offensive line, and uh, he's a big boy, right? I, I I can't imagine. You know, obviously he wasn't this big at the time of playing quarterback, but I imagine he was close, somewhat close to it. But he's a six foot six, two hundred ninety five pounder. He was an all star in Canada West in two thousand twenty two with the uh, Saskatchewan Huskies. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of potential there, and uh, you know he's a big body which I always like, and you know you know I'm crazy about offensive linemen, so this guy this guy stood out to me, especially as that first pick, and I think it was a a bit of a surprise pick because I think there was maybe some offensive linemen rated a little bit higher on the board, but uh, th- you know they've had uh, success here and there with picking offensive linemen. The the one that really comes to mind was. Uh, Brandon Revenberg a couple years ago when he was he was kind of lower on on you know with the experts but it turned out to be a really good pick.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Revenberg. That's the exact same thing I thought when they the, the there was oh they they over drafted quote unquote this kid but taking a, an offensive lineman from the prairies I never think is a bad idea. They build them pretty big out there and maybe this is one of those kids that they can bring along. We talked about the the need for. Youth at offensive line. I think I would have liked it if they would have selected more than one. But I mean, if they only thought that there was one really that uh, that warranted selecting, I'm fine with that as well. I'm really intrigued by the kid from Laurier Burke. He's 6'2", 200 pounds, very similar in size to Tunde Adelake. He made the switch from linebacker to DB at Laurier. So that tells me that the kid likes to hit. If you were a linebacker and then became a DB, you want to get your nose dirty and as we discussed last year, I think the team is going to lose one of Adela Kay or Stavros Katsantonis next year. And from this kid's measurables, it seems as if Burke could be the perfect replacement for either player. I don't know if any of these guys this year are going are gonna to play any meaningful snaps offensively or defensively if, if they make the team they're likely to, to to play on special teams. But I got my eye on this kid. I'm going to be having my eye on him in training camp to see kind of where they slot him in in sort of a backup role in 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 camp like do they have him at safety is he filling in for those guys is he getting reps there that's what i'm going to kind of be uh kind of be looking at and that he that's the kind of you know like i said i think they're going to have a spot open for a backup safety and i I like i like that pick um anything else you want to say about the the canadian draft or do you want to move on to speaking very briefly about the global draft
1: uh no, not really. I, I like what you said about Patrick Burke. I, I think there's potential there for him to slide in a couple of years, being that secondary for the Ty Cats. This is gonna sound kinda mean, but I would completely avoid drafting from the AUS if I were them. They got Reese Martin out of Mount Allison University. Um maybe like I just I, I that conference is just so bad. I, I I, no one wants to play um out east. It's just I wouldn't touch that conference with it. 50 foot pole i would i would stick to ontario quebec and, and the western side of things because they're just so bad out there
0: i think i saw somewhere though that more kids got drafted into the aus than at a quebec this year which seems crazy what? right like yeah i think i saw something where it was like eight eight atlantic school kids got picked and only like six or seven from from quebec oh. pretty 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 wild don't you think
1: well, yeah. Then I guess the scouts are just like slapping slapping me in the face, saying, "What are you talking about, you <laughs> idiot? So don't listen to me." But but yeah, I well maybe I'm um, throwing a blanket over the conference there. Maybe there's some individual players that are worth drafting, but we shall see.
0: I'm kind of with you on the AUS stuff because that's always you know when you get to the you know the final four in the Canadian college football playoffs, it's always which team gets the automatic birth essentially to the Vanier Mm -hmm. because they get to play the Atlantic school. And it wasn't always that way. Like St. Mary's used to have a really good program. Yeah. They used to be Dave Stallo went to St. Mary's and I believe won a Vanier Mm -hmm. cup with, uh, with St. Mary's. But it's, it's been a long time since the AUS had a, had a powerhouse team. All right, let's move on to the global draft. Mike, it was the first draft that took place also happened on the same Tuesday, but it happened in the afternoon. Ticats held two picks and selected linebacker, probably going to butcher this name, Penne Pavi, I think, and punter Lou Headley. Headley went to the University of Miami, while the linebacker went to San Diego State. As of now, neither of these players are signed with the team, but with the Ticats a little low on globals at the moment, they have just three on their roster currently. I could see the team making a push to sign one or both of these guys before camp opens on Sunday. Do you have any thoughts on the team selecting a linebacker and another punter in this year's global draft?
1: Not not a lot, Josh, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean this this kid uh linebacker played at the uh, University of Hawaii, you know, registered twenty tackles for loss, six pass deflections, one force fumble, three fumble recoveries, six pass deflections, and two interceptions. He's six foot three, two hundred and forty five pounds. Um, you know, those aren't bad numbers for for uh, you know, division one school in the NCAA and then, uh, Headley, the punter, uh, played at university of Miami. He had an average punt of 45.2 yards, 77 punts inside the 20. So maybe there is some potential with these guys. I'm not sure, but at the moment it, it's just up in the air.
0: I'm kind of curious about both of these guys, see the fair, be- because, and, and this is kind of an overall thought on the global draft. Like these guys went to some, pretty big schools you know what i mean like and punters punters but like if you're punting at the university of miami you got to be pretty good right like these guys did it's not like you know in, in years past they were picking guys who were playing in like the mexican league or one of the european leagues or uh you know an asian league now it seems that more of these guys are being drafted out of ncaa programs and that tells me that maybe the, the level of play is getting a little higher when it comes to these globals. I still think this global thing, because like the whole point of the global thing was we're going to get TV contracts right. in all these places around the world to make money off this. And that hasn't happened. And we're in what, like year five of this experiment, year four, five, six, something like that. Like that feels like it's it, it, it still feels like it's a little bit of a waste. But what I what I do like seeing is that. The players coming in seem to be of a higher caliber, and that I don't mean that as a, as a, any sort of insult to guys that are playing in the Mexican league or 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 other professional leagues around the world, but you come from an actual established program that people know. I think it speaks a little more highly to your potential to make an impact at the CFL level, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I still think this is this is kind of a I don't want to say a waste. Because I, I I don't wanna demean the the players that are that are coming into the league from this from this system. But it still feels to me like even with this elevated level of talent in my opinion, this still feels a little lesser than, you know what I mean? Like I just don't that's the perfect word to you, underwhelming. I just like I, I hate to say I don't care, but this whole global thing to me has been kind of it's not what the league had 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 promised it would be no, by this. There's point. no like, return.
1: There's there's no return on their investment, like at all. And,
0: and like, we're half a decade in. Yeah. Like we're not it's not year one or year two. Like we're we're pushing towards the you know, five, six year mark. Like at this point, something should have come to fruition from this, right?
1: You'd think so. It it has been a flawed idea from the beginning. L- like they talked about the NBA and the global reach and, and all that. The NBA is a global product. Um, you know, at the top of of their sport, um, they we're n- never going to get a Yao Ming type player that comes in yeah. and makes the CFL global. Um, I wish I wish we would, but if if that kind of player was around, he would be in going to the NFL, right? Yep. Unfortunately, so it's just it was just a flawed idea from the beginning. Um, I'm with you. Like I I don't mind them bringing in a couple of players each year. That's fine, but if they're spending like large amount of dollars on this initiative, I think it needs to come to an end because there is no return, um, in the other direction. Right. So,
0: yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. The draft classes weren't the only new players that the Tabby's brought in this week as the team signed four players last Friday, including a former global draft pick. Second, the second overall pick in last year's global draft punter, Bailey Flint. The cats also signed two more American DBS in Dexter Lawson, Jr. And probably going to butcher this name too. Carthol Flowers-Lloyd, and another American lineman in Kendrick Sartor. The team also announced that linebacker and special team stud Grant McDonald, unfortunately, has retired. McDonald spent one year with the Ticats in 2022 after coming over in the trade with the Edmonton Elks that also noted the team offensive lineman Kyle Saxlid. So, Mike, does anything stand out to you in any of these announcements? Uh,
1: you know, the DBs are interesting because you never know. Uh, what could happen with, with two spots open in the secondary. Um, maybe one or two of these guys uh, becomes a starter this year. You never know who's going to step in. So I don't have any you know, uh, opinions on them individually necessarily, but I like that they're bringing in more DBs for competition in camp.
0: Yeah, I, I like that as well. The loss of McDonald, I think, sucks, mostly because you never want to see a player be forced from the game early. He's only 23, and he probably no. could have had a good you know, 8-, 9-, 10-year career as just a special teams player. We've seen those Canadian special teams guys stick around for long careers, and he was really good at that. Like you, I do find it interesting that they're stockpiling young American DBs. Tells me that when camp opens next weekend, there's going to be a fierce battle for playing time, and that's going to be something that we've got to pay attention to. And I think it's kind of interesting that now there's a punter competition. You bring in Bailey mm-hmm. Flint. You have Blake Hayes. So last week we discussed uh, we discussed special teams, and we said, well, not really much to discuss, but I guess there's going to be a, a, at least a wee bit of drama on the special teams unit in training camp after all. But I, I expect the team to make more moves as we head towards the start of training camp in, in six days, as we record this on Monday. But yeah, I guess I guess a little punting competition to to end most practices might not be. Entire it, make, it makes for, I don't know how many I I, I mean, I know you don't go to Thai practice Because you're not here, but Stuff like that, the special team stuff that they usually do at the end of the Training camp sessions, kind of always makes for a little Fun, because there's always a competition, like who can kick it furthest Who can kick it best, so at least there's going to be a little bit Of that, because we know that there's not going to be any kicker competition, so we got a punter competition Ahead of us, and maybe we have a new punter next year, who knows
1: Yeah, it could be a possibility, right I mean, Blake Hayes played well But uh, you never know if Better is better, as
0: uh... Obi used to say Oh, we used to say. All right. Believe it or not, Mike, we have reached the conclusion of our Tiger Cats positional breakdown. And we have one last thing left to cover. And that is the team's coaches. The Tiger Cats enter the season with almost the exact same coaching staff as last year, much to the consternation of a lot of fans. The major players all remain. Orlando Steinauer is still the team's head coach. Tommy Condell and Mark Washington return for their fourth seasons as offensive and defensive coordinators, respectively. Craig Butler is back for his second season as the team's special teams coordinator. Linebackers coach Robin Ross, defensive line coach Randy Melvin, offensive line coach Mike Gibson, and running back coach... Jared Baines, all remain. The team does not currently have a defensive backs coach or a receivers coach listed on their website. Last year's DB coach, Joaquin Bradley, left to take the same position in Ottawa. And I'm not sure what happened to their receivers coach from last year, but I would assume in the next couple of days, we're going to hear of the team making those positions or hiring for those positions or moving a coach that's currently already on the team into a position like that. Sometimes the special teams coordinator, I remember Craig Butler, I think, One year was like special teams assistant and defensive backs coach. So we could do something like that. So Mike, after seeing this staff take an eight and 10 team in 2018 to 15 and three in their first year together, then watches the team got worse every year after that, at least record wise, do you still have faith in this staff to be the one that gets the Ticats over the hump and finally brings the city a great cup?
1: (laughs) Do I have faith in them? Um, I I do. I do I think I think they're on the hot seat this year though like all of them um if this because like you mentioned 15 and 3 and then it's been downhill uh, ever since then uh getting progressively worse worse each season record wise so listen Tommy Comdell Mark Washington obviously Orlando Steinhauer have been here for a bit now they've had certain levels of success certain levels of failure this is a huge year for them um I think that's if they have the right players on the field, maybe it, that was part of the problem. If, uh, you know, Tommy Condell can work with Bo Levi Mitchell and they can uh, really, you know, amp up the offense this year. Mark Washington has had his problems here and there, but overall he's been pretty good. Yes. Yeah, so to answer your question, I do have faith in this coaching staff, but they are in the hot seat this year. And they need, not maybe not necessarily to win a championship, but um, they need to be close. They need to be sniffing around. And, uh, yeah, like it's 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 either they uh, really produce this year or I think some people are going to be out of jobs,
0: yeah. i I'm fairly certain that Condell and Washington are entering the final year years of their contract this year. I don't get the sense that Steinhauer's really going to go anywhere unless he wants to, but I could see changes made at the coordinator positions if this year right. doesn't go well. i I still have like, the last three years, all playoff seasons, two trips to the Grey Cup. We know what this this coaching staff can do with the players at their best. We've seen it. We saw it in 2019. Now, granted, 2019 was a long time ago as we sit here today. But I I don't think that they lost the ability to be good coaches overnight or over the course of a couple of seasons. But I am with you. I think this is kind of a make it or break it. If this team goes, you know, the mic nine and nine and our – not in the mix for first place in the East hosting the East final and getting to the rick up, given all the roster changes they made, like they could have run it back. I think with, with a lot of the same players from last year. And I think fans would have been okay with that because we saw the team get better over the, the like that, that they go, they go five and one in their last six regular season games. We saw what that team could do when everything started working But I think they made so many changes. I mean, the obvious ones. They bring in a new quarterback. They have a they have a bunch of new players on both the offensive and defensive sides of the ball. They they invested in the in both lines. They brought in a new starting running back. Like they made some pretty major changes. That's gotta be reflective in the win loss column. I if this team goes nine and nine or eight and ten again, like if they go eight and ten and finish second in the East, I still don't think that's good enough you know what i mean like mm-hmm. and they and they did that in 2018 when when June Jones was here they were 8 and 10 and finished second in the east but if they do that that to me that's not a good enough this team needs to be double digit wins this year they need to be in the hunt with whomever it is most likely the Argos, depending on how that quarterback situation plays out. But I'd say that's most likely who they're battling for first. If everything works out in Toronto, they got to be in that in that fight to 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 be a, a an 11, 12, 13 win team this year. I don't want to see another you know one and five start, 0 oh and three start. I know we talked whether it was last week or the week before about how we could see this team starting slowly. If if they lose but they're losing games, you know, 33-30 and it just seems like they they just need more time to gel, that's acceptable. If they're losing games like they did last year where they go into Saskatchewan and lose like what was it like 30 to 8 to the Riders, like then that then to me there's there's things to worry about there, but until we get to that point, like I'm willing to give the staff the benefit of the doubt. But they they've got to show the results this year. They've done this team from the front office on down, has done everything to make this team a great cup or believe that they've made this team a great cup. Now, they made the wrong move, so be it. But if you make the wrong moves, that gets people fired, right? Like, you made all these changes. It's with the idea that this is going to be the team that's going to win. If that doesn't work out, I don't know if you clean house, but I think some major changes have to come.
1: Yeah, I I totally – I'm with you on that because what they said in the offseason was the players were the problem. Okay, mm-hmm. they didn't touch any of the coaching staff. They're all intact. The players were the problem. And if it doesn't work out this year, then they're going to have to turn turn it around and say maybe the coaching staff is the problem.
0: So that that's where I want to go to next. Are you surprised, given that the team has gone from 15-3 and three to 8-6 and six to 8-10, and 10, and by all indications, they underachieved last year in particular, that no major staff changes were made? Like, we talked a lot last year, especially during that early part of the season where it didn't look like the team could buy a win, that change should come, that change did not come. Does that surprise you, or are you okay with the team running it back with this group of coaches?
1: I don't think it necessarily surprises me because I think Bob Young is a pretty loyal guy. I think it takes a lot for him to get rid of guys. Like we've seen with Ken Austin, you know, it took a lot there. If if they don't start 0-8 that one year, then maybe Ken Austin sticks around for you know, if he's just mediocre, maybe he sticks around for a couple more years. So it didn't surprise me necessarily. And yeah, I mean, we're gonna see though. Like, th- like I said, like this is this is probably. I know he has a lot of loyalty, but great Cups at home, all that stuff, all that pressure. This team needs to perform, and then and then we'll see after next year. Like if if they if they completely tank it, and then this, you know, coaching staff comes back next year, then I might have a problem with it.
0: Yeah, if they. If they go six and twelve miss the playoffs, you can't bring anybody back, I don't think. Like
1: no, yeah, it'd have to take like a catastrophe for, for yes. them to get rid of Orlando, especially. Like I could see the coordinators, but it 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 would have to take like a four and fourteen record or six and twelve, like you said, for them to completely clean house, I think.
0: Yeah, like I think they'd have to miss the playoffs, honestly, for them. Like if if they're if they're a competent five hundred team like they've been for most of our lives. And they're in the playoffs, I think you can you can justify keeping Steinhauer, especially. If they if they go on if they go on a run and they go, you know, 13 and 5, win the East, win the win the cup, especially, then I think everyone co- I mean, aside from guys maybe getting plucked to be head coaches somewhere else, I think everyone comes back. If they completely bottom out, I think then you do have the conversation of is Orlando Steinhauer the right guy for this? And that's where I kind of want to go with the next question. And we're going to kind of get into this because we're going to do a power ranking of the of the CFL coaches in a little while. But we want to focus on the Ticats right now. Do you still think Orlando Steinhauer is one of the top coaches in the league? Or has that, you know, the proverbial bloom come off the rose for you in that respect, at least a little bit?
1: It's come off a little bit. You know, he came in guns ablaze in 15-3. I believe that was his first season, right? He yep. was an assistant head coach with June Jodes for a little bit. Fifteen and three, first season. I mean, that's you can't get any better than that, really. Um, and then it, it, it's kind of fallen off. And like throughout the years on this podcast, we have questioned some of his decisions. So yeah, the it's a little bit faded for me, but I think you know it can it can come right back up. Um, he can be like at the end of the season, I could rank him as the best coach in this league if he won a great cup. Right. So I think he's, you know, kind of middle of the pack right now, but it can rise very quickly this season.
0: So a peek behind the curtain, your, yours and mine friendship began. I was it Facebook. I think. It was a Facebook group we were a part of, right? Oh, yeah, we, it might
1: have been the old SOB's page, yeah.
0: Yeah, so you so you Mike and I became for, like we used to chat on Facebook and you know, he was living out east, I was living in Hamilton and we kind of our friendship grew during the Marcel Belfay era. Actually, I think you were, you're were still in Hamilton when Belfay was cooked, weren't you? Yeah. Or you were in mm, the Hamilton area. Yeah, I think it was yeah. still in Ontario, yeah. Yeah, you're still in Ontario, so I guess I guess our, I guess you weren't out east yet. But that's kind of where our, our friendship and one of the things that we used to I don't know if we argued about it or if we agreed about it, but it was I know one of the things that you used to bug you is that Belfay was always smiling on the sidelines and clapping. Do you mm-hmm. get the same kind of feeling because I, I don't see Steinhauer as like he's more in the mold of like a Mark Tressman, where right. like, you like you never really see him sweat. He's always kind of calm and cool. And I know that that kind of bugged you with Belfay. Does that part of his person, like, do you want to see a little bit more fireiness out of him? I, I know you, you can't get, that's not his style, but would you mm-hmm. like to see a little bit, him get a little bit more animated? Uh, like, I mean, Ken, he's the, kind of the polar opposite of Ken Austin, right? Like Ken Austin was like spit and piss and vinegar. Steinhauer is more of a conciliator. What do you, what, what do you prefer? You're, like do you, you wish you'd see a little bit more fieriness out of out of Steinhauer than we see now?
1: A little bit, a little bit, not too much. Cause I know that coaching has changed over the years and that, you know, yelling, screaming type of style doesn't really work anymore with these, uh, generation of kids and uh, not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, the thing is, how Marcel old Belfe, do you
0: feel right now saying this generation of kids? Like that was the oldest man <laughs> saying, I think you've ever said on the show.
1: <laughs> pretty old, buddy, pretty, <laughs> pretty old. Um, but yeah, Belfay was, uh, it wasn't so much that, it was when the team went two and out, and he had a big smile on his face, <laughs> yeah. and he was clapping the team off. He's like, let's go, let's go. I get positivity and all that, but it was just it just seemed like too much. I like the in-between. Like, Orlando, I, I would like to see a little bit of more emotion. He sees more of the guy that doesn't show any emotion, it seems. It's kind of like a blank slate, um, good or bad kind of deal. So i like to see a little bit of emotion, but we we don't want to go over the top, right? Because we've seen, like you said, we've seen the Ken Austin, which is at... You know, the Yelly Screamy, uh, you know, top of that pyramid. And then we've seen the Marcel Belfay, which is the positivity guy. So a little bit in the middle is, is good for me. And maybe a little bit leaning towards the Yelly Screamy, just over that line a little bit. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think a little bit more emotion would be good, but not over the top.
0: Yeah, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. Like the yeah. three bears. Yeah. We've I don't think that the yelly, screamy, you know, lose your mind. Like we, we see that runs out pretty quick, right? Like mm-hmm. Austin, when they started losing, like when they were winning, that works. You can, you can be a firebrand and not really worry because you're winning games. It, it were any coach that wins can pretty much do their, their style is considered. Oh, well it must work. If they're winning, that must work. And then you see coaches who, you know, the Tony Dungy types who don't seem to be all that animated, but they win. So it's like, oh, well, that style works too. Uh, I think each coach has to kind of be their own thing. I do wish we would see a little more out of him. And I think we do see a little bit sometimes. Like he has to, like I remember, I don't remember if it was the 2021 or the 2022 season, it might have even been 2019, when he was trying to call timeout on the sideline during, uh, it was against the Riders. Do you remember this? He tried to, he was calling timeout on the side, yeah. clearly calling timeout. The replay show was calling timeout. The refs didn't get to him. The riders score, a touchdown, win the game. And he kind of like feigns throwing his headset and getting all pissed off. Like we, we've seen that a couple of times, but he is more of the cool, calm, collected type. And again, if they win, that style works. If they're not winning, then something's got to change. No?
1: Yeah, I agree. And do you, what do you, what sense do you get from Tommy Condell? I think that he's not really the fiery type guy either, right? No, he was always a calm guy
0: and he was always considered if you, if you remember back to when he was working with Austin and Caleros was here, he was always in the media was always portrayed as the go between like Austin's is and Condell was like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to distill this down and talk to the, talk to the quarterback because he was the, he was the quarterback's coach as well as the, uh, uh, the offensive coordinator. Mm -hmm. So he would talk to the quarterbacks and he would kind of distill Austin's like, Fiery rants into something that was more meaningful. So I, I, I don't, and I don't think Mark Washington is particularly a fiery guy. Like I, I just don't get the no. sense that there's a lot of like Jeff Reimbold was. Jeff Reimbold, you'd yeah. see him on the yeah. side. Like I remember, it was I want to say it was 2016, maybe 2017. They were playing Edmonton in a game. Edmonton was winning. The Ticats go for an onside kick. It deflects off an Edmonton player. And goes out of bounds. And they call it like an illegal kick. And he's like freaking out on the sideline. Because yeah. I, I, I remember I was, was I was sitting with my brother and my nephew. Who sat on the opposite side of the stadium for me. So we were directly facing the Ticats bench. I just remember he was flipping out. And it's like okay. I don't, I don't know what he what he was flipping out about. Like I Because again you're in the stage. You can't see everything as perfectly. But going back it's like oh that's what he was mad about. Because I think they said it was kickoff out of bounds. Even though Edmonton had touched it. And that four would have negated it. Yada yada yada. But they, I don't think they really have. Cause like I go to like last year. Cause again, it's a lot of the same coaches. I went to practice a lot last year and I didn't see a ton of like yelling and screaming. And then they bring in a guy like Kahari Jones to help out who I, I, we can talk about. Like, do you, I'm going to ask you the question now, once I'm done talking, you can you kind of answer it. Do you think that his loss could be, cause a lot of people credited him with the team's turnaround in the second half last year, but even you bring in a guy like him, he's kind of a, a calmer guy. So, like, they—I don't mm. know if they really have anyone on staff that's that like get in your face, grab your face mask, and yell sort of thing. And I—I I, I do wonder. Uh, if we
1: got the—we well, well, have the king yelling. Oh, unless he got let go. Um. Uh,
0: oh, Casey Creehan I don't think he's with the team anymore. Yeah.
1: Okay. I don't, I don't think okay. he's
0: with the team anymore. But yeah, I just don't think that they have. And even last year, I don't recall him yelling all that much. No, like, you don't see a, him I,
1: like sitting behind uh, Tommy Condell in the booth there, not really, you know, kind of holding. Yeah, a, yeah.
0: But yeah, I just like I don't, I don't, don't see that being on the roster, and I are on the coaching staff, and I do wonder if that permeates the team where there may be. I don't want to say they're not as like up for things, but, but I do wonder if that.
1: If, maybe they need that kick in the ass every once in a while, right?
0: Maybe, maybe. And maybe, and, and, maybe
1: and, and maybe with the offense, it's, you know, Tommy Condell's not that guy, but they bring in a guy like Bo by Mitchell, who's going to f- mm-hmm. keep the offense accountable, right? He's going to be the guy that said, pound could on be. the table saying, hey guys, let's get it together.
0: Could be, could be. So what do you think about, do you, do you think the loss of Jones, even though he wasn't a coach, you know, I mean, he was like a consultant or whatever. Do you think that's going to have a massive negative impact? Or do you think because he came in midway through the season, it's it's. I, do you do you think his impact last year was overblown and the loss is kind of overblown?
1: I, I I'm not sure. Um, I, I can't give an honest answer on that because I wasn't in the in the building for you know what he actually did. Um, but I'm not overly concerned about him leaving. Like, if they really wanted him, they would have went after him and maybe got yep. rid of Tommy and, and pl- replaced him with uh with Kahari. So yeah, I, I'm
0: not overly concerned over the loss. Yeah, same here. Like, I mean, he didn't go to take... I thought he was going to leave to be the head coach somewhere. Like, mm-hmm. I thought he was going to... I mean, I probably said on the show... <clears throat> pardon me. Probably said on the show, he's going to be the head coach of the Ottawa Red Blacks. Now, he went to Ottawa, but he's their offensive coordinator. So, if he was going to an offensive coordinator role, the team could have probably had him in that. They chose not to. It is what it is. I know a lot of people wanted him to stay, and and I do think his offense is... What he did in Montreal... Getting that team back from the brink, I think, I think is very commendable, but I think people do forget that he was the offensive coordinator in Hamilton under Marcel Belfay. The offense didn't exactly like the league on fire. It was good. Not great. I do like Kari's offense, but I don't, I think his, his impact as an offensive coordinator is a little overblown just because I think people like him so much. So, I mean, this is the coaching staff we're going into. Like I said, I think we're going to see some, some additions come come our way like, like i said they don't have a db coach they don't have a receivers coach right now i think we could see some additions come their way but i think these are the guys they are rolling in the season with and like you said make or break here this year i guess right
1: yeah I, I think it has to be you know you had the chance in 2019 to win it in front of your home crowd it didn't work out you got close you know you've had 2021 two kind of de- sorry
0: <laughs> you said 2019 you mean 2021
1: yeah 2021 my bad um and then you know, the, then, the, you last know
0: yeah. the same right like covid <laughs> yeah, has made yeah. out it's still 2020
1: it's kind of blurred together now yeah it's 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 kind of kind of blurred though the years kind of sometimes i even ask when i might work because i have to write the date every day what year is it 2023 okay <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> um but yeah they've had the down season since then so i forget what we were even talking about
0: but for shut up time right
1: Put up or shut up. Yeah, exactly. So
0: yeah, this is, this is
1: big pressure, big pressure for the cats this year.
0: All right, let's have some fun here. We're going to move on as we have done with all the other position groups. We are going to set ourselves up to be ridiculed by power ranking the league's nine head coaches. I don't want to say I found this easy, but I think this might've been the easiest one that we've done. What about you? How did you find power ranking the league's nine head coaches?
1: Yeah, it definitely took a lot less time than, you know, scrolling through all the linebackers yeah. and, and DBs and all that stuff. And I'm Peter less likely. the receivers
0: I- and trying to figure out who goes where in the court. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Let's unveil these rankings then. Going as always from top to bottom. So, Mike, what does your coach power rankings look like starting at nine and going up to one?
1: All right, at number nine, and this is no offense to this guy. He just hasn't proven it to me yet. I got Bob Dice at number nine, and I think that he's a fine coach. I think he will. I, I know that the players really like him. They want to play for him, and I think he will do really well in Ottawa. But at this point in time, um, he has to be at the bottom of the list because he just hasn't shown me anything as a head coach, except for that short amount of time he had last year in Ottawa, which he did uh, you know, pretty, pretty well, pretty well. Um, at number eight, I have Craig Dickinson. Uh, you know, he had a couple of good seasons with Saskatchewan, made a couple of division finals, but last year was a complete mess. Um, he, In the eyes of the public, it, it looked like he lost his team. The discipline wasn't there. It didn't look like his players really respected him because, because they disrespected him during games, um, you know, off the field, on the field. It was just a mess there. So Craig D- Dickinson comes in at number eight. Uh, I think he did some good things in Edmonton. Um he hasn't won anything in this league yet. Uh, but I do think he's a pretty good coach, but but not you know near the top of the league or anything. So Jason Moss slides in at number seven. Uh, number six for me is Rick Campbell. Yes, he's won a gray cup with the Ottawa Red Blacks, but his record is is not good in the regular season. And I think that last year he got really lucky with like a generational talent and Nathan Rourke made him look good. Uh, we're going to see, we're going to see this year how good of a coach he is because, you know, he has some decent quarterbacks, but, uh, you know, it's not Nathan Rourke. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a big year for Rick Campbell. At number five, I have our coach, Orlando Steinhauer. Um, he's done a really, some really good things in this league as a head coach, a 15 and three record, best record in Ticats history, but hasn't won the big one yet. Um he could jump up the rankings real quickly, uh depending on what happens this season but at, at this moment he's he's at number five for me uh number four is ryan Dinwiddie i and this was a tough one for me. I did not want to put him above our coach, but I just feel like since he won the gray cup last year he would he has to be um you know near the top of the pack he hasn't been you know overly great in the regular season with the Argonauts. I know they've done good. I think they were first the last couple of seasons, which is kind of weird for me to say, but they were an okay team and then they won the great cup last year. So I think there's good things ahead for him. I think he's a pretty good coach, even though there was a lot of question marks with some of his decisions he's made in the previous two seasons, he got that championship. So he slides in number four for me. Number three is Chris Jones. Uh, you know, he's, he's proven that he can come in, take a, pretty bad teams and turn them around into contenders. He won the great cup with the, uh, with Edmonton. So he, he's proven that he can win a championship. And I think he's doing a pretty good job to turn around this team at the, at the present moment. So he's number three, number two is Dave Dickinson. He's just as, his, his, uh you know, his career record with the Calgary Stampeders has been tremendous, especially during the regular season. Um, he's been one of the best for many years and he won that great cup in 2018. So he's number two. And then, of course, Mike O'Shea at number one. He's got an 82-58 and 58 overall record with the Bombers as head coach. He's won two Grey cups. Um, his team has been dominant the last three seasons. They didn't win it all last year, but they were damn close. So Mike O'Shea sits at number one for me.
0: Well, this is going to be one boring-ass segment, I got to be honest with you, because you and I do not have the differences we have our guys in, in different like slots, like it's not. And I, I know that sounds obvious, but it's like, so I'm, I'm just going to give you my list. Number nine, Bob yep. dice, just like you, just like you. I think he's going to be a good head coach, but he has the least experience out of the nine guys. And until I see what he can do on a full-time basis and not just an interim one, he's got to be in last for me. He, his, 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 him and nine will probably look foolish by the end of the year, but Cause I, cause like, I think he's going to do well in Ottawa. I think Ottawa is going to do well this year. And I think there's a guy or two in front of him that might get fired at the end of the season. So like you, Bob, but until we see what he can do as the guy, it's a wait and see approach, right? Number eight, just like you, Craig Dickinson came out of the gate, strong back-to-back West final appearances. But in my opinion, he did that mostly, especially that first year with Chris Jones's team. Last year was the first that I think the team was truly his, and we kind of saw the results. The season, you know, got away from them. They hosted it was a great cup hosting year. They didn't make the playoffs. He's clearly on the hot seat. I believe he's in the last year of his contract. This season is a make or break one for him. And I just don't know if after this season, if if he gets fired in Saskatchewan, if he'll ever be a CFL head coach again. So he I almost put him in ninth because I do think that. Next year, we'll be talking about Bob Dice as the head coach in Ottawa and not Craig Dickinson as the head coach in Saskatchewan. But because Dickinson's had at least a little bit of success as a head coach, I had to put him a little bit higher. Uh, number seven is the first place where we uh, disagree. I have Rick Campbell at, at number seven. This is going to sound ridiculous for a guy who's won a great cup, but I think he's one of the most overrated coaches in the CFL. And I think he might be one of the most overrated coaches in CFL history. People will bring up that he's been to three Great Cups. He's won one Great Cup, but his overall coaching record is 61, 77, and two. And even if you take out the expansion year where they went two and 16 in Ottawa, he's still under 500 at 59, 61, and two. Like, like you said, he had a generational talent in Nathan Rourke last year. What's he gonna do when he doesn't have that? He's got some good quarterbacks with with Dane and and Vernon Adams, but if he Does it this year? Then I think I'll have to revise my thinking on him, but I was never overly impressed with the job. He did not. I mean, the Ottawa team, he won the great cup with went under 500. He had two. He's had, including this past season with BC three seasons with an over 500 record. I, I just, I'm not, I'm not really big on, on Campbell. Number six, that's where I have Jason Moss. I think he gets unfairly criticized because he acts like a jackass on the sidelines. But I think he's actually a decent coach if he has the right talent around him. i I don't know if a team can win a title with him as their head coach, but he can make that team competitive at the very least. In four years previous to head coaching stint Edmonton, he's got under five hundred just once, and that was at nine and nine. And his team has played in the division final the other three seasons. Like that's not a terrible resume for a guy that most people think is a joke. And that nine and nine season, they finished fifth in the west and missed the playoffs. The Ticats finished second in the East at eight and 10 that year and made the playoffs. So even though they didn't make the playoffs, they were still one of the five best teams in the league that year. So I I understand that the sideline theatrics and all the stuff he's done, he wasn't great as an offensive coordinator in Saskatchewan. I still think he's a pretty decent head coach. And I think because of the, the stuff around him that he does, I think that that unfairly gets him knocked as maybe not being all that great. Number five, I got Ryan Dinwiddie. I know this will probably be the most controversial placement because he just led his team to a championship. I just don't know if he's a good coach or not. I know that sounds weird. Like, yes, he won a great cup. The Argos have been in first place both years he's been there, but I still have questions about him. Like Rick Campbell, I just said, he has a great cup title, and I have him much further down the list. But there are kind of a lot of meh coaches that have won a championship. Like, just off the top of my head, Corey Chamblin has one from Saskatchewan. Danny Machocha, who everyone thinks is is a joke, had one when he was in Edmonton. The coach for BC, when Steve Barato, who came in mid season, won a great Cup in BC. Like, yes, there's the Nagels uh, to and the Tom Yeah, like, like there's, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's great. You have, you have to be a pretty darn good coach to win multiple great Cups, but to win one, I think I think if you you catch lightning in a bottle one year, you you can you can make it go. So. I don't know if you would say those those, those one off guys that I mentioned and you mentioned, they're not elite coaches, but they all won a championship, right? I I don't know what it is, but there's just something about Dinwiddie that I don't like. And the only reason I have him as high as I do is because he won a ring last year. And again, I, I know this is going to be controversial because I mean three of the coaches I have ahead of him have won breakups, but the next one is Orlando Steinhauer, who have him fourth, who hasn't. And this is where I'll take heat from Argos fans because I have Steinhauer over Dinwiddie. And maybe I'm wrong on this, and Dinwiddie should be above him. But I think if you went to the Argos right now and asked to trade coaches, if you said, hey, we'll trade you Steinhauer for Dinwiddie, I think they do it without thinking twice. I think if Orlando Steinhauer was available after they fired, because Dinwiddie came in after they fired who was it? Oh, it was Corey Chamblin, because they fired Tressman, hired Chamblin, then fired Chamblin and hired Dinwiddie. If Steinhauer was available that year, I think they would have hired Steinhauer. So. Well, you know, we talked about earlier, there are some reservations with, with, with him. He hasn't won a championship, but I still think he has the capabilities to lead the Ticats to a championship. So for that, I have him slightly ahead of Dinwiddie. And our top three are the exact same. And I'm actually surprised. I'm not surprised that you would have Chris Jones third, but I have Jones third, Dave Dickinson second, Michael O'Shea first. I think Chris Jones kind of in the Jason Moss mold. Everyone hates him, thinks he's a dick, doesn't like how he runs his operation, but he's a good friggin' coach. Like he when he was first in Edmonton in 2015, they won a, they won their first cup in a decade. Before he bolted, I think he went to go coach for the Cleveland Browns, he was reviving the Riders. And I think he's gonna do the same with the Elks this year. Like, I think his personality leads people to kind of discount him as one of the game's best coaches. And while I'll agree with most people in thinking he's an asshole, he's without a doubt, in my mind, one of the three best coaches in the CFL. And clearly you, you agree with that statement too. Dickinson was an easy number two for me. Like the stamps keep winning 10 plus games every year. I know we inherited a great situation, but so did Craig Dickinson. But unlike Craig, Dave's managed to keep Calgary near the top of the standings. His coaching record is tremendous. 73, 29 and two. He's made it to three great cups. He's one. He has just one season as a head coach with fewer than 12 wins. And that was in 2021 when the season was only shortened to 14 games. And he, we went eight and six that year. There are demerits against him. You know, Calgary has noticed a playoff game since 2019. They haven't won a playoff game since they won the title in 2018. But I just think, you know, I, you keep predicting Calgary's demise every year. And I understand the desire to do that. But every year they seem to be there 10, 11, 12 wins and in the playoff and Grey cup hunt once again. And I think Dickinson, even though he inherited a great situation, has maintained that level that Huffnagel set. And I think that's a really hard thing to do. And then number one, like I said, it couldn't be anyone else. It's Mike O'Shea. The the you you mentioned the coaching record, but three straight trips to the Grey Cup, two Grey Cup championships, double digit wins every year for the last six years. The Bombers are combined twenty six and six over the last two regular seasons. You mentioned the eighty two and fifty eight all time coaching record. That is in spite of going twelve and twenty four his first two seasons on the job. He he was the back to back Coach of the Year, which almost never happens. He back-to-back finishes atop the West division, four straight trips to the West final, a six and one record in his last seven playoff games. The resume speaks for itself, man. There's no head coach in the CFL right now better than Mike O'Shea. I I don't think anyone, I don't think you could make a credible argument against him being number one. And I don't know what else we have to talk about. Cause usually when we do these things, there's at least a little debate, but aside from one spot here or there, these are these are in lockstep. What's going on here?
1: Yeah, like we said, it was kind of it was much easier to choose the uh, the head coaches than any of the positional groups, and it's it's funny. Michael Chase sits at the top of the list. A Canadian boy is he? He must yep. he's the only Canadian kid on that list, right?
0: Or Canadian? Coach uh, on that list. no. Bob Bob Dice is Canadian too. Oh no way! Bob Dice is Canadian. I, I mean, Rick, know that. Rick Campbell's Rick Campbell's kind of Canadian, but not really. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like
1: he might have been but no yeah here. oh yeah bob
0: bob, D- bob dice from winnipeg
1: i'll be i did not know that well that's good and you know like we said he's at nine right now but he could he could take a leap up that list this year and i think he will because you know the, their players are, are very excited to play for him and uh, another thing with uh, about chris jones is uh yes he, he's perceived as an asshole and maybe he is but the majority, the vast majority of his players love, love playing him. for him. So he's not, you know, he doesn't have that reputation with the players. And obviously there's going to be uh, exceptions to the rule where there's a player or two that doesn't like him. But but for the majority of the guys, it's, uh, you know, they all, all have really good things to say about Chris Jones.
0: Here's what we're going to do. So these are our, obviously there's, these are preseason coaching power rankings. We are going to come back at the end of the year, whether t- like once the coaching Carousel, whoever gets fired, whatever that happens at the end of the season, when that's all taken care of, we're going to come back and rank the nine coaches again, because I do believe we're going to have a much different ranking. I still feel like even if Winnipeg doesn't win the gray cup, O'Shea is probably still going to be number one. You know what I mean? I mean, Dickinson could surpass him. Like Craig Date or Dave Dickinson could surpass him if he wins a gray cup, but I still feel like we're going to have O'Shea number one, but I'm just curious where, because the Bob Dice one is the one where I think we're going to have the most, the Mm -hmm. most changes from from where we are today sitting here on may 8th versus where we'd be you know december 10th so to speak so we'll let's make a promise we'll come back at the end of the season and and we'll discuss uh, we'll do another coach's power ranking to see where we uh where we sit then but that's it you ready to play a game we're gonna play a little a or b you ready to go mike yep let's do it all right five players were selected in last week's draft that were either drafted by an NFL team the weekend before or signed as an undrafted free agent with an NFL team. Those players include Montreal's first round pick Jonathan Sutherland, who signed a undrafted free agent deal with the Seattle Seahawks, Toronto's second round pick Jared Wayne, who signed an undrafted free agent deal with the Houston Texans, Saskatchewan's sixth round pick City So, and eighth round pick Tavius Robinson, who were drafted by the New England Patriots and the Baltimore Ravens, respectively, and Montreal's seventh-round pick Chase Brown, who was drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals. These five players may never play in the CFL, or if they do, it could be years before they finally arrive in Canada. So, Mike, CFL teams selecting players with NFL opportunities, or I should say with NFL contracts already in hand, are A, wasting their pick, or B, taking a worthwhile risk?
1: Depends who the players are. I think it's a worthwhile risk if you pick a player that was drafted late in the draft, like the sixth, eighth round, or pick a player that, uh, you know, signed an undrafted free agent contract. Um, some of these guys that are picked in the you know high rounds or the first, second, third or fourth, um, I don't think it's worth the risk because even if they do flame out in the NFL, I think, you know, going from such a high... To be like, oh man, like I'm drafted in the first or second round, I'm gonna be set for life with this money in the NFL. I'm gonna be playing in the NFL for, for years to come, and then it falls apart, and then they have to go back to the CFL. A lot of those guys won't even bother with playing in the CFL. So I think the high end picks aren't worth the risk, but I think the lower end, you know, sixth to you know eighth round pick or undrafted free agents are worth the risk because they they'll probably come back if they if they lose the opportunity in the NFL. Um, more likely so than the guys that were drafted in you know, the higher rounds.
0: Yeah, see, I kind of look at this in similar but different ways, and I think it's a worthwhile risk with an asterisk, and that is depending on where you pick the player in the CFL draft. Like, for instance, Chase Brown's probably never going to play in the CFL, but Montreal took him with a seventh-round pick. Pick any seventh round of a, of a CFL draft over the last decade and tell me how many of them— who didn't have NFL opportunities, made it a CFL players. It's very rare. It'd be the difference is if you took like Montreal took Jonathan Sutherland, who was an undrafted free agent, but signed a deal with the Seattle Seahawks. They took him in the first round. Now he has less likelihood of sticking with Seattle, given that he wasn't drafted. But you've now invested a first round pick in a guy that you're almost guaranteed to not see this year. Where you think even in the CFL draft, you want a first round pick who's going to somewhat contribute in his first year versus a pick that you take like Saskatchewan took Tavius Robinson in the in the eighth round. He was a fourth round pick of the Ravens. If he never plays, what's an eighth round pick? Like we always bring up Sean Thomas Erlington and I believe Luke Brodeur Jordan was the final pick in the draft one year. And those guys have become solid CFL. I mean, Jordan's not in the league anymore, but they became solid CFL contributors, but how often do you see an eighth round pick actually make a splash in the CFL? It almost never happens. So to me, it's, it's all kind of dependent on where the CFL team makes their selection. You're taking a guy early. You're, you're I don't know if it's necessarily worth it. You take him late. What's the harm? Cause you're probably not getting anything from that pick anyway. And if this guy does come up, Well, next thing you know, you got a star on, on, uh, you know, like Ryan Hunter's a guy who spent, I think it was three or four years with the Indianapolis Colts. His NFL opportunities dried up. And now a lot of people think he's one of the best offensive linemen in the CFL with the Argos. So you never know when that guy might have an opportunity to come north. And if he does, what type of player he'll be. You take him late. I don't have a problem with you. Take him early. eh, I'm a little more skittish on it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I, I totally get that point of view as well. That's a good addition to the conversation because yeah, you can't waste a pick, right? I mean, you can't waste a pick in the first round and not see a guy for four or five years or not see a guy ever. So yeah, makes sense.
0: Yeah, like the Ticats did with Sam Giger. They took him in the first round and he didn't come up here for four years and it was like every right. year it's like is Sam Gier coming, is Sam Jiguer coming. And then I mean he came and he he was fine, he was okay. but Yeah, he was okay. All right. The Toronto Argonauts were the latest team to debut changes to their 2023 uniform by showing off their new helmet for this upcoming season. They have moved away from the darker Oxford blue color that has dominated their headwear since pretty much forever and gone with the lesser used and lighter Cambridge blue that has kind of been their secondary color over the years. This will go along with what the team is teasing is a full uniform revamp that they will debut later this month. I believe it's the 23rd or the 24th. So Mike, the Argos new helmets are a, a great change or B not that great.
1: Uh, Not that great. Not that great on its own, especially like I, I, I'm waiting to see the rest of the uniform to, you know, really make a judgment call on this as a whole. But the the helmet alone doesn't really do anything for me. I'm not crazy about the color, and I feel like the logo on the helmet is like kind of far back on it. It's just a little strange. Maybe they'll fix that, but it's a thumbs down from me initially.
0: Yeah, I don't like it at all. I I I don't like the light blue of the helmet. I don't like the dark blue cage. I don't like the the like you said. The logo looks like it's way far back on the helmet. I don't, I like the darker helmets that they, that they've worn with the, like the Ricky Ray with the, A, like, if you're going to go with the boat logo, fine, go with the boat logo. But the I, I just feel like the darker blue helmet with the white face mask, I just felt like it popped more. This feels like, I don't know, it feels le- lesser than, I just don't, I, and people are like, these things are fire and they're awesome. And I just feel like people get excited about new and then, after a little bit, they'll they'll come back down Earth and be like, "I don't know if they're they're all that great." because people love those BC Lions uniforms when they debuted them. And now, if you've looked over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot more criticism of, oh yeah, that that home black one doesn't it's kind of plain. And I just I don't know. I just look at I just they debuted it, and I was just I was really severely underwhelmed. I don't think they're like I just don't think the light color works. The light, the light blue, the Cambridge blue with with the dark blue face mask. I just don't think it works. I I I think it, if you want to do it, inverse it. Do the the light blue cage and the dark blue lid. I just I don't know, man. I I I just didn't like it. All well, right, last
1: acceptable because we are tiecat fans, right? So uh,
0: <laughs> you know here's we, th- we can hate on uh, anything Argos. Here's the thing, though. I will give credit where credits due. Before they revamp yeah. their uniforms. Like the the ones they have now, which looks like a plain T-shirt with Toronto written across it and numbers on it. The ones that they had, like that 2012, I think it was 2012 to 2018, the Ricky Ray era essentially of Argos uniforms. I thought they were really they were they were very plain, but they had some stripes on the sleeves. I liked the I liked that look. You know, you had the dark blue with the white pants with the stripes on the side. I thought it was a pretty clean look. I don't want to ha- like. I'm giving my honest opinion. Like we talked about all the other uniforms. We love the Stampeders uniforms. We were meh, you know, liked some, but didn't like all the BC stuff. You know what I mean? When these uniforms roll out, like we're going to come back on the show when they unveil those uniforms. But if they go with like the, the light blue helmet and like a light blue Jersey and pants, like I just think it'll be too much. Like I feel like they, I understand them leaning into the double blue stuff. But at the same time, I think that that lighter blue is better as an accent color than as the focus of your, like maybe as a, maybe as like, um, uh, like an alternate Jersey or an alternate helmet, I could get behind it. But as your, as your sole helmet, I don't, I don't really love it.
1: Yeah. And I think that, um, we need to figure out our uniforms and helmets and then stick with them because we're changing like every second year, every year it seems. So uh, we need to get the uniforms right for each team and then stick with them. Right. That's what I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know people are always getting excited about new uniforms because if you, I, and I think you, you know, you stick with your traditional home and away. And if you want to throw a, a funky third Jersey in there every couple right, of years, cool. I think I'm okay with that. But I mean, it's easy for us to say because tiecat tie catch uniforms are pretty, They've they've been pretty some I mean, they they've made some some changes over the years, but they've they've been pretty consistent for yeah. for quite some time now. So I mean, I understand people like new and fancy, but I don't know, maybe it's just not for us. All right, last one this week, Mike, former Argo's coach and executive Jim Barker has left the franchise to take a role with the CFL on TSN panel. Barker was a senior advisor with the boatman last year. And he was filling the void left when John Murphy, who was rehired by the team last week, was fired after an altercation that happened during the 2021 East Final. We discussed all that last week. We're not going to get into it again. Barker has, however, previously worked on the panel in 2018 and 2021 when he wasn't with the team, and he spent the 2019 season in the same sort of advisory capacity with the Ticats. So, Mike, the CFL on TSN panel adding Jim Barker is A, the type of freshening up that this panel needs, or B, won't change a thing and it's just more of the same.
1: I'm going to go in between those two answers because, you know, the past years I've seen Jim Barker, he's been okay um, on the, on the panel. Um I thought that I watched a little bit of the draft on TSN and I, I was impressed with, you know, his knowledge on some of these players. I, I didn't think he had any knowledge on Canadian university football players or Canadians in the NCAA he, he, he seemed like he did his research. So for that, I was a little bit impressed. But overall, it's not going to change my, you know, non-viewing of the panel because I don't really watch anymore. I think you're going to have to – my honest opinion is I think you should get rid of Kate Burness off the panel. And I think you should get rid of uh, uh, DB uh, – what the hell's his name? Why am I forgetting David his name? Sanchez. Davis Sanchez, I do not think he is very good on the panel at all. I just don't think he's very good on TV. I think he stumbles words. I think he's not very elegant in his speech. Yeah, I just don't think he adds much at all, like at all. And I think K is annoying. Um, I know I've I've thought that for many, many years. Um, I think they're going to have to change a lot on the panel for it to be good again. And uh, adding Jim Barker isn't the answer.
0: No, like I, it's it's nice to get a newish voice, but... I, I think there's systemic issues with, with the, the TSN broadcast as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think the panel is kind of it, – it's maybe the most visible aspect of it because I just think it's – you're just adding another old-timer whose heyday was the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, you got Milt. When was his run? 90s and early 2000s. Dunnigan, 80s and 90s. Sanchez is a little bit younger, but I mean, I don't expect anything to change with like I don't expect anything to change with TSN's delivery of the CFL product.
1: Right? Why would they? No one else all. wants the product, right? That's what it's, they said themselves.
0: Yeah, and it's and even if we take the less cynical approach and are just like, there's no money there to to make changes. Well. I mean, you're just going to give me the same stale product. You're just going to give me the same stale product that like you can add whomever you want. And it's because they've, they've changed the panel over the years. Henry Burris was there for a while. I mean, Chris Schultz was great, you know, when he was, when he was there for all those years, but it's, you just keep recycling the same types of people. You get the same types of commentary. Nothing's ever fresh. I don't think adding Jim Barker is going to, like what what fresh ideas is a sixty-six year old going to bring to the table? And I know you're not going to get, you know, twenty-five year olds because those guys are still playing in the league or what have you, but I just I don't know what the fix is for TSN's kind of lackadaisical approach to to anything CFL. Like I just I just find it like I don't watch the I don't watch any pregame shows. I if I'm watching a game at home at halftime I'll go wash the dishes or something, or I'll make myself a snack or I'll go to the bathroom. Like I'm not really, I don't have any vested interest in listening to them kind of go over stuff that I, like if they're, if they're doing stuff in game, like it's a halftime stuff, it's all stuff. Like they want to talk about the quarterbacks or a play here or there. And it's like, I I, I saw that too. Like, mm-hmm. and they do, they don't, they don't provide any added insight for me. And I don't think they do for a majority of, of the people that watch like i don't think like there's some like in years past like maybe went maybe for a younger football fan it does but having watched the game and, and been around it for as long as we have I, I just don't know if there's anything there and like it's not even fun like i know that they try to do like when we talked about this try before, to be fun we, yeah they do and it just falls flat like just talked corny a,
1: and uh, forced forced it's and yeah, and they, they don't do that on other panels on TSN. I was watching a Raptors game with Caperness as the host of the panel. They weren't joking around constantly. Mm-hmm. Like, they might make the lighthearted comment here and there to, like, you know, just be uh, likable on TV. But the, the goal of the panel isn't to be funny and, you know, these little made-up little skits or whatever. Like, just analyze the games. That's all I want. And I, I don't need a comedy act at halftime, especially... When you you guys aren't
0: naturally funny, so enough. You know what you bring up likability. Like I don't find Milt to be all that likable, and I know like you know maybe they're supposed to be a villain, and that's why they're. Like do you do you like I just feel like milk, Milt is I don't call him Milk. Uh, Milt is like argumentative for the sake of being argumentative. You know what I mean? Like I just I don't know. I I don't find anything about it entertaining. I don't think find anything about it educational. Like, it just feels bland, like really bland. Like, they're trying to be, like, find what you want to be and be that, but you have to work with the talent you have. Like, not everyone can be Shaq and Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith. Like, you know, you can't be the NBA on TNT group just because you want to be. Like, that's something that has to happen naturally. I mean, the NBA has, TNT's had the NBA broadcast forever, and it's only in the last few years when Shaq came on, that they really started to get that hype. Like they had Chris Weber on there before, and they've had players, other players in there with, with Shaq and Kenny, or with uh, Charles and Kenny Smith. But it's when Shaq came on board and there was that dynamic with Chuck and like, that's when it started to really work. And I, and I, you know, playoff basketball is on right now, and I'm watching a ton of it. And obviously, you know, you, you watch the games that are on TNT, you get all that stuff. And it, it, it genuinely seems like they're having fun. It genuinely seems like they like each other. Do you get that feeling from the TSN panel? Like, I could be way off base here, but the CFL and TSN panel feels like they come into work, do their job, and then don't speak to each other until they got to see each other at work the next time they're on. Do you get that same feeling that I do?
1: I kind of get that vibe as well, just because there's no—it doesn't seem to be any natural chemistry between the the panel members, so— I mean, like you, like you said, we could both be way off on this, but it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of camaraderie between um, each panel member. So it, it's not that they—it looks like they don't enjoy being at work, but uh, you know, you, you kind of get a little bit of that vibe that they come in, they do their work, and then they get the hell out of there, right?
0: For sure, for sure. All right, Mike, that's it, man. This is the last episode that we will do until December where we're not talking about football players being on a football field. We have made it. The off-season is over. Training camp is, as we sit here today, six days away. How do you feel about that? Are you the anti-Herb Zerkowski? Are you actually filled with excitement?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go anti-Herb on this. I'm excited for the season to start. Uh, Not only to watch the Ticats play, but to watch all the other games. You know, it's always exciting thinking of, hey, maybe this will be a really good year for CFL football. Maybe we'll be watching some really entertaining football on the field. And I I certainly hope that's the case.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to be sitting. I mean, as we sit here right now, the Ticats have not announced their training camp schedule. But I've got to assume training camps open around the league on Sunday. The Ticats will be opening on Sunday. It'll be at McMaster, Ron Joy Stadium, like always. I can't wait to be sitting out there and late, late Sunday morning, early Sunday afternoon. It's it's not the most thrilling thing to watch a football practice, but seeing the guys with the helmets on and and the jerseys on again I means football's football's nearly here, man. And that's that always fills me with a little bit of joy, at least at least a, a tiny bit, tiny bit of joy. And then when you see them get those pads on and hit for the first time, that's when all the joy comes in. So it's uh, I, it's it's that time of year where everything's you know it's a cliche but everyone's you know undefeated we're thinking everyone's got great cup visions dancing in their head we're no different here are we 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 think the cats are going to win it all this year we're not going to say that yet we got a preview show coming up in a couple of weeks but i mean we're we it's just no one's listening it's just you and i like we think you're going to win the whole thing this year don't we i'm leaning positive i'm leaning positive yeah nine nine eight and one Second place finish in yeast in a Grey <laughs> Cup championship. Perfectly fine, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, something like that. We'll see. We'll see when it comes. You guys will have to tune in for our official um, predictions podcast. It's always one of our favorites, as we say every year, uh, to make asses of ourselves.
0: For sure, for sure. All right, that was Week for this week. I'm Josh Smith.
1: And I'm Mike Graham. Eat em raw.
0: Eat em raw.